Welcome to the Love Reaching Community's Sermon of the Week. For more information pertaining to the life of the church, please visit our website at lrcchurch.co.za. Good morning. It's really good to be back here again. Uh, as Johanna said, we're from Hillcrest, lived there for five years, been leading the church there, City Hill Church, for the last four years, and it's been an amazing privilege. Before that, we were in Peter Maritzburg. Uh, I was part of that church from when I was 13, and uh, there for a couple of decades of my life together with my family. Both of my folks are waiting for us in heaven. They passed away, my dad, a couple of years back, and my mom 14 years ago, 14 and a half. And uh, so many familiar faces that we see here from friendships all over the place. It's really great to reconnect. I also had a first-time experience here this weekend of going to uh, Ellis Park or Emirates Park, whatever it's called. Um, our family is passionate about rugby. And so for those Bulls supporters, I think we need some prayer time for you at the end because <laughs> you've had a bad season. It's just been terrible. As a Sharks supporter, I, I still support anybody who plays against the Bulls because of all the pain we've had inflicted on us. And if you don't watch rugby at all, maybe better that way. I'm not even sure that we're going to be watching rugby in heaven, but you never know. We'll see how it, goes, how it goes there. But it really is great to be with you this morning. And if you're visiting, welcome. Great to have you uh, here. If I could say that as a visitor as well, although this, this does feel like um, extended family along with uh, the church that we're part of. In 1974... If you wouldn't mind putting up that picture of the giant Rubik's Cube. In 1974, a Hungarian sculptor and professor of architecture named Erno Rubik invented a 3D combination puzzle that I'm holding in my hand here. It took over a month for Erno to solve his own puzzle. That's how complicated this cube was, which now holds his name, the Rubik's Cube. Uh, a little while after that, uh, Hungary kind of became part of the communist uh, under the communist government or uh, ideas, but a, a Western toy company took Rubik's idea and sold this toy. It's one of the best-selling toys in the world. As of 2009, I don't have more recent figures than that, but as of 2009, over 350 million Rubik's cubes had been sold. It was, it's literally one of the world's best-selling toys. I remember as a, as a boy, we didn't have a Rubik's cube in our home, but my cousins did. And when we visited their home, I used to fiddle with this Rubik's Cube and eventually figured out how to solve one color. <laughs> and then I figured out that if you line those colors up, you create a little bit of a pattern. And then if you turn it upside down, you could form the T. But beyond that, I was stuck. I tried and tried and tried as hard as I could, but I could not solve the Rubik's Cube. I was so desperate one day that I eventually took all the blocks apart and put them together just to see what a finished Rubik's Cube looked like, what that finished Rubik's Cube looked like. <laughs> We're part of the, the Rubik's Support Club here. The, the, the little guys on this side of my brain that marched in ordered lines wanted to see what an ordered Rubik's Cube looked like. We then, I got married, had kids, and my youngest son, Ethan, I don't know where he got his Rubik's Cube from, but he got this cube. And the same frustration with unsolved Rubik's Cubes, uh, I found... Um, bubbling away inside of me, but we have, he's got something that I didn't have when I was a kid, and that's Google. So I went and Google how to solve a Rubik's Cube. Wham! whole lot of sites with step-by-step -step process on how to solve the Rubik's Cube. Well, Steve, where are you going with all of this? Thank you for asking that question. Doesn't life sometimes feel like a mixed-up Rubik's Cube? It's, there's just, the, all the bits are there. This is my life. But how to get it all lined up is sometimes so, it feels complex. 
there's relationships, there's finances, there's things to do, decisions to make, where to go, what to do, what to say yes to, what to say no to. Life is not exactly simple, and yet we know that, well, I trust that you know that God is there and is involved with our lives. So I'd like to speak this morning about how to find God's will for our lives. To borrow Erno's um, puzzle is how to solve some of the Rubik's Cube. And I'd like to read a couple of verses uh, in line with this idea of the will of God. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, a famous prayer that many of us learnt when we were little kids, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. And then here's the phrase, may your will be done. There's so much packaged into that phrase. First of all, it implies that God has a will. He's not just this benevolent Santa Claus kind of God that's just, oh, look at all of them. Look at what they're doing. Those are, they're doing such lovely things. And, oh, oh, my word, those are such nasty things. No, God has a will. He, he, he's got an idea. He's got thoughts on my life and thoughts about your life about how it should be done. And we taught to pray. Jesus said, when you pray to God, so may your will be done here on earth. That's not just for the rest of the earth. That's my bit of earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What about this verse, Matthew 7, verse 21? Jesus speaking again. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Wow, there's a whole lot packaged into that verse. But again, the point I'm trying to make is that God has a will. And God's not so interested in the fact, oh, well, I attended uh, LRC Limbro you know, a few times, and I read my Bible a couple of times. He's interested in, did you do my will? Did you obey me? Did you follow me? What about this, Mark 14, 36? The context of this verse was the night before Jesus died. He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what awaited him, not just the physical torture, but the spiritual torture of having the sin of the world placed on him. And he goes into the garden that night, and he prays. But it's not just uh, what I'm about to receive, may the Lord make me truly grateful. It's not that kind of prayer. It is deep, intense prayer. So much so that the Bible tells us he sweated drops of blood. I don't think there's any one of us that have prayed that intensely. And this is his prayer. Abba Father, talking to God his Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is when he's taught us to pray that prayer, but at the end of his life here on earth, when the push comes to shove, his prayer is, God, you know I don't want to go through this pain, but not my human will, but your divine will be done. So I'd like to ask you this question, or two questions this morning. First of all, how important is God's will to me? I'm asking you to ask that question of yourself. How important is God's will to me? This is a massive deal. This isn't just tiny. I've just given you a couple of verses because I want to spend the bulk of my time about how to find God's will. But this is a big deal. How important is God's will to me? You don't need to look much further than a, a one, two, or three-year-old to notice that you and I are born with our own will. And that continues for the whole of our lives. We are born with our own logic, God-given. We're born with our own emotions. And all of those are part of our decision-making. We think about things. We feel about things. We're influenced by things around us, so we make decisions. We have a will that makes those decisions. How important is it to you or to me 
to consult, if I could use that word in video commas, to ask God for divine guidance, saying, this is what I think, but what do you think? Jesus says, I know what I'm thinking, right, in his humanness, the humanity, he says, I don't want to go through with this pain, but God, what you will is what I'm going to do. Let me give you an example. We had breakfast the other day. with a couple in our church. We don't know them very well. We're just meaning to get to know them a little bit better. And we get chatting. The husband has built up a very, very successful business with contracts in countries all around the world. His wife serves in, part of, in some of our serving teams. And uh, he's busy by all worldly accounts successful. And we're chatting. He's a very uh, engaging man. Towards the end of our conversation, just as we're about to finish up, we get to talking about our country. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what the trigger was, but we get to talk about the political climate, etc. And so, suddenly, this becomes the real part of our breakfast. And he says, you know what? I'm, I'm so sick and tired of the things that go on in South Africa. I don't want my kids to grow up here. I'm seriously considering moving. And he, he gives me some of his different thoughts around the subject. And while I'm listening to him, a few different thoughts are going through my mind, but one of them is this, and I posed it as a question. I said, does God have any thoughts about it considering your family and your lives? Have you asked God what he thinks? He didn't even pause to answer the question. He just told me what else was wrong in the country. And I drove away from there thinking that from his point of view, the, the logic, he has the financial ability to be able to move, etc. It seems right, seems like a good idea, but not once has he stepped back and said, God, what do you want me to do with my family? Where do you want me to live? I'd like to say this, that living in the center of God's world for my life is the safest po point in the world. Go to any country, Syria, South Sudan, wherever the massive war, if it was the will of God for me to work there or to live there or to do something there. That would surely be the best place in the entire planet for me to live. Can you see how, and I'm using a bigger example there, but can you see how my will and if you like what God's will sometimes collide? What I want naturally doesn't always line up with some of the things that God wants me to do. So going on from there, I'd like to ask this as my second question this morning. How does God guide me in his will? Let's say that after my five minutes so far, you're totally convinced, like my life should be following the will of God 100% of the time. I wish that were true for all of us. Well, then truly the next big question is, how does God guide me? I heard a story once which uh, I found as a helpful illustration to talk about God's guidance. The person who told the story said that there was a harbor in the world that was pretty dangerous. On the entrance to the harbor, there were some hidden reefs. So what they did is they set up a series of lights. And when the pilot of the boat lined up those lights and it appeared as one light, he knew that that was the safe path, the safe line to take into the harbor. I'd like to share this morning six different lights that God uses to help guide us. Now, I'd like to suggest that not any one of these lights in themselves show us all of God's will. I'll explain what I mean by that. But when we line up two or maybe three lights together, we could say with a fair deal of confidence, maybe this is God's will. This seems to be a safe path for me to travel. If our hearts are open and we're saying, God, please guide me, and we then are looking for his lights, if you like, to guide us, God wants to speak to us. He wants to guide us. He loves us because we're his children. And so light number one in terms of God's guidance would be his word. And this is 
massively important. The Bible says of itself in Psalm 119, it was actually a prayer prayed by the writer. He says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This book is a difficult book to read in some ways. There are 1,189 chapters, 66 books written over a period of a few thousand years by over 40 different authors, and yet it's got a constant, if you like, editor, and that's God himself, whose message flows from beginning to end. So the writer is saying, as I read this book more and more, I come to know what your will is, particularly the general will of God related to things that apply to all of us. For example, if you were to read the Bible, you would see that adultery is not God's will for my life. We had a couple visit our church and actually attend for a few months, but we only came to meet them one day in our welcome lounge when they introduced themselves, and one of our pastors was sitting with them, and they said, we've got a question. We'd like to know, is it God's will for us to divorce our spouses and marry each other? It's like, okay. Well, they say, we live in different parts of Durban, but we're having an affair, and uh, we come up here to your church just to get away from all the troubles that are down there, and uh, we really like it here. How many of you know the answer is not to say, well, we will pray with you that God helps you find the answer to your question? No. It's stated in here. That's one big, bright, shining light. Don't do it. I'm stating some big examples here, but I'm coming down to some the, the more tricky ones. The Bible teaches us not to lie. The Bible teaches us to pay our taxes. These are all things that we can find. This is in the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3 says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified is a big word for being made holy or being made more like Jesus. So he says it's God's will that you change, that you avoid sexual immorality. God, how do I care about relationships if you're dating? It, well, there you can see clearly what God's will is, avoid sexual immorality. If you're living together with someone that you're not married to. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, that's outside of God's will for our lives. What about 1 Thessalonians 5.18? Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, you know, that's a really tricky verse right there. What's God's will for my life? Oh, yes, may your will be done. 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances. How many of you do that? Well, I don't either. So we know we're outside of God's will. We get into grumbling and complaining. Came across this letter that was written uh, in another country to the revenue service in that country. And it was written by a man who'd just become a Christian. And so he wrote this. He says, dear sir, I've just become a Christian and found I cannot sleep at night. So here is a hundred pounds that I owe you. P.S. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> he could, from knowing God's will, know what he's meant to do. Now, one thing I'd like to just caution us about is when it comes to God's word, what it doesn't tell us, it tells us the principles that God wants us to live in, but it doesn't have Steve Wimble shall go and live in this city and do this and that in here. So what some people do is they say, well, I'll flick open the Bible at random and trust God for a verse. If you're not reading the Bible regularly, that can be a very dangerous thing to do. Like the one guy who chose to do that and flicked it open and said, God, what shall I do? And his finger landed on ra at random on Matthew 27, 5, which says this, then Judas went and hanged himself. <laughs> so he thought, well, that's, that's not good. I better try it again. So he landed on Luke 10, 37, which says, you go and do likewise. So he thought, no, this, this really is uh, not good. So he 
turned again and landed on John 13, 27, and that says what you're about to do. Go and do it quickly. <laughs> How many of you know that if you take time to read the Word of God, we get to understand His ways, the broad path, the highways, if you like, that God wants us to live with I think I might have said this here once before. It's something I say fairly often back home as well. But it's worthwhile having a good systematic way to reading the Bible, to approaching it. There are a number of different ways. My wife uses a, a Bible app, Bible in One Year, it's called. And every day she reads those chapters. She's pretty disciplined, doesn't usually skip a day. So that works. But for others that are slightly more flexible, you chalk up so many chapters that you haven't read after a month, you're like, whoa, I'm so far behind, I just give up on the whole thing. So my boys have got a different system. I've printed out a list of all of the chapters in the Bible just listed there on two pages, just an A4 printout. And as they go, they tick off the chapters that they've read. And they've just picked and chosen as they've gone along the Bible. Ethan started with the shortest books in the Bible to get, feel like he was progressing faster. Levi started with the longest book in the Bible, Psalms, to feel like he had knocked out the biggest book up front. They're different wiring. The way that I've read the Bible is by taking three bookmarks, one in Genesis, one on Psalm 1, one on Matthew 1. And then I keep those bookmarks moving forward. If you read, if you read four chapters a day, you'd finish this Bible within a year. If you read about two and a half or just even less than that, you'd, do, you'd finish it in two years. And as you go through the Bible, you're reading at different parts, and it's kind of getting a little bit of a balanced diet, if that makes sense. So this is God's first light, and it's the major part of how he guides us. Thank you. The second light, the second way that God guides us, is through a still, small voice. In the book of Kings, we, we told the story about Elijah. He was pretty discouraged. A lot of things had gone wrong in his life. And so he goes down and spends some time getting away from everything to talk to God about where to go. And he ends up in this little cave on a mountain. And this massive wind comes through. And God doesn't speak to him through the wind. And then a massive earthquake happens. And after that, 1 Kings 19, 12 tells us, and after the earthquake, there came a fire. But God wasn't in the fire. Sometimes this verse is, I think this verse is saying that we look for God in the very big things, the earthquake, the winds, and the fire. And God wasn't in those things. And then it says, and after that, a still small voice. And God gave Elijah a very clear direction of what to do. A still small voice to me is God speaking to me through my thoughts and through my heart, through my conscience. There are three sources of thoughts that I can have uh, in my mind. Obviously, myself, I generate my own thoughts. Secondly, the devil can plant thoughts in my mind. Those are generally negative thoughts that lead to me doing uh, negative things. And then the third source of thoughts in my mind is God himself. It, it's quite difficult to figure out what's God speaking and what are just my own thoughts. And I don't think there's any one of us that could claim to have this all right. Hence, I say it's one of the lights. But somebody once explained it like this. My thoughts are like raindrops. If you leave me alone for half an hour just to think, I'll start here and the raindrops will come in and end way over here. God's thoughts or God's voice in my mind is more like a river that's got a different quality and a different flow. I don't know how better to put that. I don't know if, those, if you remember the, the radios that you used to tune manually before we tuned them digitally. And if you're driving along, you'd turn that tuning button and that little goodies would slide up and down and you'd get the right frequency and then we'd say, okay, now you're getting it loud and clear. Then you'd go around the mountain and get static and need to retune. Sometimes I think hearing God's voice in a still small voice, a little bit like that, sometimes it feels loud and clear. Sometimes lots of static. If I'm getting static, 
I shouldn't give up. I know that God's there. I know he's trying to talk to me in different ways through his word, through his voice, the other four lights that I'm coming to. When we moved, we were faced with the decision of moving cities. It was a big deal for us because this was, I'm going back six years ago. I felt God had spoken to me through a still small voice, just nudging me in my heart saying he was going to open a door for us to leave Maritzburg and move somewhere else. I was pretty nervous, and that wasn't a thought I generated because, for various reasons, I didn't want to leave. As we processed it and prayed, we felt God show us through a number of different ways that this was His will. But that was one thing. The other thing was where to go. A couple of different doors had opened up, and people, people that we respected, and I'll come to that in a moment, had different opinions on whether we should or shouldn't, and why, what, when, and how. Over three months of intensely seeking God for multiple lights to line up, it felt like the lights were multicolored and flashing. I didn't really know. And one day, we were away on holiday towards the end of this. I had a fixed time frame to make the decision. We went away on holiday, and every morning I was in turmoil. And in the afternoons, I was thinking about it, and I go to sleep at night, and we were talking about it. What does God want us to do? And one day, the one day near the end of our holiday, I said to Jax, I'm going down into the beach this afternoon. God knows I've done all of the process of looking for the lights. But I just had this, I don't even know what to call it, like this thing that I'm going down to the beach and I, I need God to speak to me. Settle it here in my heart what we needed to do. And as I got into the beach that afternoon and began to walk, it was like the download cable of heaven plugged into the top of my head. I don't know how else to describe it. And I felt these clear words from God flow into my heart. Talk to me about the decision that we were making to go. Talk to me about the advice that I'd got, that it wasn't bad advice, but even if things went this way or that way, I was still to follow this path. I felt these words speak courage into my heart. I must have walked for about an hour or maybe a little bit longer with just tears in my eyes and feeling some of the courage of heaven come into me. And when I walked off that beach, I felt like God had spoken to me, not just out there, but deep inside here. Not because I was scared or overexcited because I'd soberly prayed about it, but I felt God guide me. I went home that afternoon and I said to Jax, I feel like God's spoken to me. We sat with our boys and said, we are leaving and we're going here, da-da-da, etc., etc. This is what I would call the still small voice, one of the lights. The third light through which God speaks to us is what I would call godly advice, the counsel of others. Proverbs 20 verse 18 says this, make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, Obtain guidance. You're going to solve the Rubik's Cube. Google. And if you want to get godly advice, ask godly people. Now, let me read another verse about that. Proverbs 15, 22. Plans fail, it says, for lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. We live in a world where we don't generally get taught to ask advice from other people and open our hearts. We don't go ask financial advisors about how to invest for long-term gain, and we go for medical advice when, to the doctor, etc. But when it comes to advice about our future, about our lives, we're often pretty closed, and we don't like the feeling of vulnerability of asking other people advice. The Bible encourages it very strongly. Now, a couple of thoughts around this. First of all, getting advice from somebody is not getting permission. That's how cults start, okay? So when I was dating Jax, or before I started dating her, I went and got some advice from people on whether they thought it was a good idea. They were not there saying, we forbid you to marry her and we command you to do this. No, it was just perspective. Ultimately, I've got to stand before God on my own decisions. 
But people's perspectives, godly perspective, often helps me make decisions better. So let's say I've got a decision to make. I go and get advice from two or three people. One person says, I'm not so sure about that. The other person says, it sounds fantastic. I then, it forces me to go back to God and pray a little harder. So well, I've got some godly advice here. God, I need you to show me through some more lights. Help me to line up some things so that I can see what you've got. Godly advice has helped us in our lives in so many different ways from making decisions that were either too much or too little, running too fast or too slow. Ultimately, I take responsibility. But the secret to getting godly advice, to my mind, is learning to ask good questions. This, this kind of thing, I think, is too broad. I might respect Duan, his faith and love for God. And I said, Duan, if there's anything God ever gives you for me, please don't hesitate to mention it. If I was in Duan's shoes, I don't think I would 18 months later say, you know what, Steve, I've been praying for your life, and I've just been thinking about some of the decisions you're making. And that He might say that, but gee, I'd think to myself that our bridge is probably too flimsy for those kinds of trucks to go across. But if I went with a question and said, Duane, I know you've been through some of this before. These are the details of my journey. I just wanted to get from you some perspective on what I'm thinking of doing. Do you think that this is a good idea? Do you think it's a bad idea? Could you talk into it? That gives him the opportunity to give some, not you shouldn't do that or you must do that. But in my experience and knowing you, this is what I, these are some thoughts. That's getting godly advice. My late father, who's passed away and gone to be with the Lord, was an excellent example to me of a man who was able to live going and getting advice from others, get input, and then go before God and make his own decisions, having got all of that. The fourth light that God uses to guide us is, and I've lumped a few together here, but is dreams, visions, prophecies, etc. There were so many different ways that God had of supernaturally speaking to people in the Bible. Under etc., for example... One guy had a hand appear in the middle of the air and write words on a wall. I don't know if you've ever prayed, God, please show me and just write it on the wall. Make it so clear. Just on that guy's story, incidentally, the words on the wall told him he was going to die that night. And the kingdom went to another guy completely. So if you see a handwriting on the wall, just be cautious, is what I'm saying. Moses, God spoke to him very clearly through a bush that burned but didn't burn up. So God's got so many different ways of speaking to us. As long as we open, saying, God, I want to hear from you. I remember one day when I was a bit younger, I was, I was praying, asking God for guidance on a decision. And I happened to be standing at a lounge window, looking out into the sky. And suddenly in the sky, these letters started to appear. I was blown away. I was actually busy formulating the testimony I would have of how God spoke through supernatural ways. I noticed there was an airplane busy sign writing. And I thought, well, God can use a donkey, he can use an airplane. But when the whole word was spelt out, it was... A brand that was being advertised, I can't remember what it was. It had absolutely no relevance to my decision at all. <laughs> all I ended up with was a laugh, actually thinking, okay, here I was standing, hoping for the supernatural sign. I need to do the hard yards in hearing and uh, hearing from God. But in my life, few and far between, but God has used some quite incredible ways of speaking. When I was 18 years old, I wasn't sure what I, I would, it was the year I'd finished school. I was serving a gap year at our church, but I wasn't sure what to do after that. And I had this dream one Thursday morning, and I, I, this dream just stuck with me, vivid. I dream a lot, but th this was vivid. I really felt God was trying to talk to me through this dream. And I went in and said it at the office, and they had some, meaning, that was just some banter. Later on that morning, uh, the guy leading the church 
asked me whether I would consider taking over the leadership of the youth the following year. That caused, almost, that caused major knots in my stomach because I'd been planning on going and studying down in Cape Town. And the whole weekend I toiled and I looked for these lights and I got some advice and etc. and there was no clearer. And it, on the Monday night we had a guest speaker come through our church and he'd written a book on dream interpretation. So I think, well, I've got this dream and I've got this decision about where to study. So I sat in the front row in a brightly colored shirt, hoping that he would come to me and say, okay, this guy with the bright red shirt on and give me this word and say, this is what you need to do. And that didn't happen the whole service. I've just been uh, open and honest here. So I thought, well, I didn't get a word about uh, where to study, but I've got this other dream that involved a girl in the dream. Not that I'd met, but just this dream related about a girl being in love with me. So he... uh, so I sit down afterwards and share this dream with him, and he listens to the whole thing, and, and he says, I don't know where he was getting all of this from, but he said, often a, a girl like that in a dream can represent youthful vitality and the daughter of Zion, and there's some things that he linked together. And then he said, I, I don't know if, if this means anything, but I think God might be saying to you to get involved in youth leadership or to, to lead the youth or something like that. And off he went. And I think back that on the Thursday morning, I had the dream, and that Thursday, and it had nothing in my mind to do with youth. And that day, I get asked this major decision, which changed the direction of my life. And on Monday night, through this dream, God spoke to me about the direction to take. Roll fast forward a few years, and my boy is now in grade seven. Now, I haven't had a dream between now and then that God's spoken to me through. He's now in grade seven, and we're choosing high schools for him. And his heart is absolutely set on school A, and we feel God guiding us to send him to school B. But I want him to hear God for himself. In our case, we could just say to him, you need to go there. But it was, he had a whole lot of dreams that he thought were all attached to the school. So we listen, and we talk, and we pray, and over a period of a couple of months, we get to hear what's driving his motivation. And he's very upset when we say we feel God might be guiding us here. He says, well, why should I even bother praying then? Because if God's told you, he's not going to tell me something different. He's like... And we say, boy, go and pray, because if God's talking to us all together, we'll hear the same thing. And he prays and he prays, and then one day we're having this conversation about high schools, and he suddenly bursts into tears. And he says, on Wednesday night, I had a dream, and I forgot about it, but it's exactly what we're talking about now. He says, I think God is guiding me to go to school B. And in his 12-year-old processing, it involved laying down all of his dreams and saying, God, I'll follow your will. I don't think it involves him laying down all of his dreams, but I wasn't going to jump in and say that because I know that the best thing for any human being, including my boy, is to learn that God's will is always best for me. He'll only see that in retrospect. I'll tell you many other stories of how he's been a ganga and all kinds of other things, but God spoke to him very clearly when he trusted God for that. Number five, and I'm coming in for a sharp landing here, number five and six. Light number five is what I would call redeemed common sense. Now, I've put common sense in inverted commas because common sense is not that common. When we get emotional about things, we make sometimes bad decisions rather than well thought through decisions. As my life follows Christ, I should learn to think more and more some of Christ's thoughts. But applying logic to a situation is not a bad thing. What I'd like to say is that it shouldn't be our only light because sometimes the, thing that, the things that look best to us are not always the things that look best to God. So I take redeemed common sense logic, I apply myself to a situation, and then I say, God, please add in one or two other lights to help guide me here. The sixth light that I'd like to 
talk about our circumstances. And I've left this to last because many people make this their only light. Romans chapter 8 says this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What I understand that to mean is that if I am following God, he will use even the worst of circumstances for my good. Circumstances for me, I take as a red light rather than a green. What I mean by that is, let's say that I, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who wanted to go to America to do something related to church work. He felt God was guiding him with some other lights, but he applies for a visa. The visa comes back, door slammed shut, locked, and bolted. We could then say, it seems to be God's will for you not to go. But if the visa comes back or it's possible to move to this city or that city, like my friend, the business guy that I spoke about earlier, that doesn't mean it's a green light, just that there was a circumstance. It is a light that I need to line up with a few others to say, God, are you guiding me and us in this direction for this thing? Or did it just happen to be a circumstance? Because, you know, th things can happen. We can also work some circumstance and then say, oh, okay, that must definitely have been of God. But it's actually our emotions are involved there. So I put this as the sixth light, but it's very much part of God's working and guidance. Joseph, by circumstance, ended up in jail in a foreign country as a slave. In that jail cell where he was unable to do anything, God's will still prevailed. So that's great hope for those of us who feel like we might be trapped by something or some kind of circumstance. In the middle of that, God's will can still come through. This Rubik's Cube that we're trying to line up, is a Rubik's Cube that God sees from a different view to us. So we might see just a portion of it, but he's looking at all the rest, and he moves one block and one block and one block, and we think from our side, boy, this isn't getting any clearer, but from God's point of view, when you see a professional Rubik's Cube solver, you don't know what they're doing, and suddenly, bang, it comes out. You can see I'm not a professional Rubik's Cuber. It comes out completely solved. I'd like to finish this talk with an illustration. Brandon, maybe I could ask for your help. Just in unraveling this rope here. My long-standing buddy that was at Vosti together with me. That dream, indirect, one of the indirect consequences was I ended up meeting Brandon in May soon after that. You could just unroll it and, or just leave the, the balance of it there, Brandon. Let's say that this rope, thanks for your help. Let's say that this rope could go right around the auditorium. And let's say that that rope represented eternity. The Bible teaches us that if you've got faith in Christ, we'll be with him forever and forever and forever. You and I cannot even think that big. Once we've spent a million years, let's say we spent one million years speaking to every single human we ever met here on earth. Add all of those up. You wouldn't have even crossed the first centimeter of the rope. It just goes on and on and on. And let's say that that little black piece of this rope represented my life here on earth. There's a day appointed on which I will die. God knows that day. I don't. And after that, I will spend eternity together with him forever and forever and forever and forever. This isn't true for every human being. It's true for those whose faith is in Christ. If that is true, wouldn't it be of utmost importance that during this life here on earth, I consulted with the God of the universe to say, God, not my will, but your will. Not just my good decisions, but your better decisions. 
not the things I feel are best and the way I want to do it, but I ask you to guide me using bright flashlights or tiny little candlelights or any kind, that during this piece of life here on earth, I can live a life that looking back and reflect on it and say, I did my best to follow the will of God. It's possible to live out our faith in another way. And so, well, of course, I believe in God and I understand and I've, I'm saved, I'm born again. Words the Bible refers to people who put their faith in Christ. But the rest of our lives, we say, well, I'm just going to do my thing. And when I pray, I say, God, please bless me. And I'm not going to do this. I say, God, please make this work. And I never pause to consult the CEO of this world and say, God, what would you have me do? I find this idea very, 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 very sobering. Because wherever God wills me to be, wherever he guides me to be, I've got the whole of eternity to spend reveling in the joy that that would bring not only me, but him. And when he can say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. Could we stand to our feet together, please?